Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. This has been a learning experience for me, that I didn't have a better education about this, and I have a master's degree in psychiatric social work from New York University in the midst of the civil rights movements and the Vietnam War. You need to be kind to yourself. We are all students, and we've all been learning and evolving. So if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't be talking to each other. I am ready. Our country has entered into a phase of very significant, deep discussions of racism. Benjamin Bowser, Professor Emeritus, worked extensively over the years to explore and understand racism. Dr. Bowser, thank you so much for joining to talk to us about this. Thank you, sir. Well, it's an honor to be here, and I thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. Before we begin, I must comment on my own reaction to preparing for this interview. I've come to realize that I, too, was exposed to subtle and not-so-subtle racist behaviors and prejudices. I think it's mandatory that we understand the nature and origins of racism. I'm embracing Jean-Paul Sartre. In order for us to understand the process, we first have to rid ourselves of the prejudice. We have quite a bit of good information about ourselves and others. First of all, racism plays a much more central role in our society than we'd like to believe. It is, in many ways, it functions as a barrier to our understanding of class differences between us, in particular among white Americans. There are people, a minority of people in this country, who benefit financially from it and have, if it disappeared, their capital would disappear. So there are both financial reasons for it and there are social reasons for it. We also have a small portion, um, we estimate about 25% of the population of white Americans who actually need racism. It's part of their identity. It's part of their sense of self. They couldn't be superior if they didn't have a belief in racism. So we have economic reasons for it. We have social reasons for it. And we have psychological reasons for it. We also have an historical reason for it, and that is racism is very much a part of our historical legacy. This is why it's possible for you to grow up in a community and believe that it wasn't racist when, in fact, it was. And and we've all, all of us, white, black, and whatever, have been touched by it. If we could go longer, I'd talk about how all of the financial, the psychological, the social, and historical, cultural are all connected. They're not like distinct pieces, but they're just different doors into the same room. One of the things that I've become impressed about is that the word racism itself, its original manifestation as a word, historically used to classify without in degradation. It wasn't the necessarily negative thing. It wasn't to impugn anybody. It was simply to classify. But now it seems to have taken on a much more nefarious quality to it. Can you give us a little history of the actual word racism in terms of how it has evolved and how we're using it today in our society? It's almost a question of where you begin. First of all, in terms of the question that you're asking, I have to say that most people do not know that racism is a fairly modern and recent phenomenon. You know, there's a a viewpoint that, oh, well, human beings have always been, have had enmities and racism is one of them. Well, yes, it's correct that human beings have always had enmities against each other. Racism has not been one of those enmities. The ancient world, the Greeks, the Romans, and so forth, had a great deal of respect for 
Africans. And in fact, in the ancient world, Africa in many ways was a center of civilization and knowledge and culture. So there wasn't a sense of Africans as being inferior or of Europeans being superior. That didn't come until slavery. Racism as a phenomenon began with the justification of the Portuguese to enslaving Africans. That was the beginning of the term. It's only then do you have this notion that explanation of Europeans being superior to people of African ancestry, and then later on people of Asian ancestry. That came later, 1500s, 1600s. For example, we had slavery in the 1400s, 1500s, but one could argue that it was enslavement without racism, because it was exactly what it was. It was an economic institution, and the people were very clear about what it was and what it could do and what it was meant to do. There wasn't this sense of Africans as being inferior human beings. And there's another phase of racism, a redefinition of it, in the American context. And this comes out of our British-American history, where the British were very clear about racism as being a physical difference generated and indicated by skin color. And it was very much like biological racism, something that was invented here, with the idea that there were certain people who were white and then other people who were black. That is strictly an American invention. I'll give you an example of this. I asked my classes, I said, has anybody uh, been to Europe? And a few hands will go up. Are you familiar with the maps of Europe? And more hands go up. And then I asked those people who put their hands up, uh, can you tell me where white land is? And they look at me like, what are you talking about? Oh, there's no white land in Europe? Well, how did white people become white? And then a light goes off of those people who have traveled and say, well, you know, Europeans don't see themselves as white. Well, of course they don't. They're not American. <laughs> the, the idea of color-tinted races is a biological concept, a myth, a piece of fiction that was developed in the United States of America in order to justify racism and maintain the, the colonial plantation system. How do you take 2% of the population and control 98% of it, the rest of the population, and not get your heads chopped off? Well, the way you do it is that you advance European indentured servants, and you tell them they are privileged now to be white people, and you take Africans who were at the same level as the indentured servants, and you reduce them to slaves, tell them they're black, and then tell the whites that they have to control the blacks. And so you have the beginning of racism mm -hmm. in the United States. Racism, according to the geneticist, is much more of a social construct than a biological construct. But what you're saying by your history is that it was allowed to become a social construct for political and economic reasons. That's very intriguing and disturbing. Did not people protest what was happening? <laughs> oh, no, there there was protest. There was rebellion. There were heads chopped off. People were shot, killed driven into the into the wilderness and and on oh no 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 it didn't come about willingly or without resistance we can go back to the bacon rebellion the beginning of that protest against the notion of biological races as such well races also builds a class barrier and justifies social class oppression of white people you know, that's one it goes hand in hand so no, there there was protest. 
Now, back to your point about the geneticists and anthropologists, you're absolutely correct. There's no genetic justification for races as we define them, none whatsoever. The geneticists are clear about that. The anthropologists as an association have a statement on race pointing out that it is a myth, that it is absolute nonsense. Genetically, there are more physical variations between people who are in the same family than there are possibly variations between people of different races. Racism is really nonsense, and it exists is because we, we still believe in it. And that's what makes this so important to discuss, but so big in terms of learning all its various components. In the 1800s, there was a movement by science to classify. It's when eugenics became somewhat of an issue, and Darwin became somewhat of an issue. And it, Do you think that those who were proponents of, of racism simply got onto that same pattern and say, great, we have now a way to justify or explain our positions? Or am I talking about something that didn't make sense at all? I'm just curious. No, no, no. You're, you're exactly on the money. The scale of slavery, not just in the United States, but we're talking about in the Caribbean, in South America, the scale of the looting of Africa was as such that people in the Victorian era had to have a justification for doing it. After all, I mean, these are upright, moral, religious people, and it was very important that they have a feeling of justification of righteousness on these issues. They couldn't be, I mean, they couldn't have possibly be involved in something that was as inhuman as, as we now think of slavery as being. You, so you had to have a justification. And racism and the science behind it, the organization of science and the organization of society, of segregation and so forth, were always justifying and saying that this was correct. We were doing Africans a favor by putting them in slavery because their condition was better as slaves than in their original context in Africa, which, of course, was nonsense. What you just said forces us to think about how they justified it. I must also quickly note that one of the things I learned in preparation is even the medical system, even psychiatrists, had a notion that black folks were somehow inferior and the black patients could not be analyzed. And this perpetuated racist stereotypes in the medical community, which probably then spilled over to other communities. What a pathetic story this is. But it was taken as gospel. I, I would imagine, what's your thoughts about that type of thing? Well, it, it was taken as gospel, but fortunately in every field there were people who, who questioned it. It wasn't a slam dunk. It wasn't their voices that, that pointed out that it was nonsense. In the same way that there were abolitionists who opposed slavery because they recognized at that time it was inhumane and unjust. In the same way there were people in the, uh, the science and professions who had the same view. We haven't paid much attention to those voices because they were critical and they were pointing out the errors. But now there are attempts to understand who those people are. One of the terms that has been thrown around a lot lately is institutional racism. And there are different structural racism, internalized personal racism. Could you give us a little bit overview of what these mean and how they manifest themselves? 
Yes, yes, yes. And I'm the right person to ask that because they originate from sociology. Institutional racism is a acknowledgement of something that we all see is bigger than us, but we can all do something about. And that's the fact that racism, inequality is driven in every generation by specific organizational action. For example, if you segregate schools and you make one school inferior than the other, you're going to have inferior outcome. If you discriminate against people in employment and you keep them out of jobs that are that pay well and build skills, in a generation, you're going to have people who are unskilled and not qualified to do the work in the next generation. If you live long enough, you see the effect of that. That's institutional racism. That's institutional. It means that it is not some individual who, who says, I am a racist, and therefore I'm going to be prejudiced against people, African people or people of color. You can, in an institution, have people who are not racist, who are anti-racist, in fact. But if they work the job, they engage in the profession, or they preach the gospel in a particular church, but never question why certain people are discriminated against and kept out of it, then in a generation, you will perpetuate the inequality. That's institutional as opposed to individual. When we talk about institutional racism, a nice way of thinking about it is you're talking about schools, police, government, churches, employment, corporations. You're talking about organized entities. What are the behaviors of these organized entities that perpetuate inequality in society? That's what we mean by institutional racism. Structural racism is essentially the same thing. It means that there are barriers, there are structures put in place. You can have a person who's not at all racist defending institutional structures that are racist by simply doing the job that they do, and they do the job well and in the way that they're supposed to do it. And if they're not aware of the impact of their, of their decision-making in these organizations, then they are perpetuating racism through institutions and may not even know it. The literature in psychiatry right now, every newsletter, every magazine, seems to have an article about the racism and institutional and structural within its own organizations and the desire to change things, and I applaud that. I was personally astonished that in 2008, 14, 15 years ago when this must have started, the American Medical Association apologized to the National Medical Association, which is the medical association for black physicians that the American Medical Association was guilty of racial discrimination in its organizational policies and practice. It, this, this brings it into my lifetime. This is not something that's historical. And are you seeing things like that that have substantive changes? Do you think people are grasping this for what it is? Or is it just, I, I don't even want to put it this way, but is it more just a current fad? I, I hope not. I, I truly hope not. It's not a fad, and it hasn't been. This acknowledgement and progress goes in cycles like a, a car without a driver that's put in, in drive. The car will go speed up at certain points. It'll slow down at other points. It will run into a tree someplace else, <laughs> and then in other places it will accelerate. So change is like that. It's not simply going away. It will come back, and it's remained with us, and it's been a struggle all along. It makes me wonder, getting back to Sartre's comment, that before we understand the process, 
we have to rid ourselves of the prejudices. Is there any sense of why the American community, from what you read, still maintains this position, or is it changing? We make progress in one generation, and then the next generation comes along and appears to be less tainted by this, and then by the time they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, they're just as adamant about racial separation as prior generation. And that's because this is not something people are born with. It, it, it is part of our culture. And one of the mistakes that we've made in the civil rights movement is that we have thought of racism and discrimination as being something that could be addressed simply through laws, pass a law, enforce the law, and you'll get change. Well, yes, you will get change in that generation, but if you don't address the cultural racism, then in the next generation, there'll be an effort to do away with the progress that was made in the prior generation. That's the kicker in cultural racism. That is, if you don't change the culture, it's going to inform how institutions will be organized and operated into the future. And if the culture is racist and institutions are not racist, then institutions are going to have to become racist. And we see that right now. We see that literally in front of us, their opposition to all of the civil rights gains of the 1960s, which they are, are, are very slowly trying to roll back. And why is that? It's because the culture wasn't changed. So that's why we see this going on and on and back and forth, this movement back and forth. We make some progress, then we regress, and then we make some more progress, and we regress, and so on, because we have not dealt with the culture. Think of it this way. This is the year 2020. We have, as a culture and as a country, never questioned the concept of race and of racial inequality and inferiority since the colonial period. It's never been questioned. And we've had civil war, we've had reconstruction, we've had civil rights. But the point is, unless you question the very foundation of racial inequality, which sits right there in our culture and in our social identities, until we address that, we will continue to have this generation after generation. It demands that we study the origins of our culture. and Absolutely. I don't know if there is enough serious educational opportunity or if the schools are even dealing with this in their civics courses, history courses, call them what you wish, about the origin of so many of our um, cultural processes. That's one of the things that struck me, I must confess, that as I'm reading all of these things, I didn't know it. And I'm embarrassed, but I'm finding out that a lot of people also don't know it, so I guess we're all embarrassed. But I'm most embarrassed as a scientist. I try to go into a person's background as much as I can. Don't always get where I want to go. That's just the reality of things. The whole notion of racism and discrimination and the violence, we don't seem to be looking at its seeds, or we don't want to look at its seeds. You're correct. Do you think we're making substantive progress now in trying to teach the history of our cultures, or you think we're just going to go through another cycle? I want permanent change. That's what I'm trying to say. But, yeah, yeah. I, my point is that it took me... I, I'm going to tell you something I wouldn't have said to you 30 years ago. Okay. And that is progress is two steps forward, one step back, 
two steps forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. <laughs> <laughs> All right? Yes. So we go up, we go back, and we go up, we go back, and seem to have to learn. We have to go backwards and learn to appreciate what we had, then go forward. All of that is to say that you're embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I study this stuff, and I'm still learning about it. At the university level, it's almost, I, I won't say common knowledge, but we ponder. We have information about our society, and it's, it's not all of it is pretty. And the question is, how do you inform high school students and elementary school students about these issues if you could get the school boards to even acknowledge these issues? especially now with the way that either you are liberal or you're conservative, and, and if you're not one or the other, then you really don't know what you're talking about. So, yes, you're right. The education, uh, informal education, is missing. I think one step forward, you have to look to places, Colombia, Panama, France, England, are all trying to integrate the history of slavery and the slave trade into the elementary high school equivalent education. Did you know that? No, I did not. Right. This is the decade of people of African ancestry in the UN, and this is part of a world effort to address racism in the rest of the world. The U.S. is not a part of that. Brazil as well. And they are experimenting. They are trying to figure out. They've figured out how do you introduce this to youngsters without traumatizing them, but informing them. They've figured out how to present this material in multiracial settings so that the children of African descent are not embarrassed and put on the spot. In psychiatry, they're beginning to ask psychiatrists when they're dealing with patients to deal with family histories and cultures where you will find histories of race and racism that have been traumatic in those families. Many psychiatrists don't touch, don't know about, and never and never even thought about as being possible causes of contemporary behavior. There's movement going on in the world, but it's not in the United States for the most part. Interesting. You bring up a point about what we've individually experienced. I am old enough to remember the separate bathrooms, the separate water fountains, the white folks fountain, the black, they would say color. Then it would say colored fountains. Yes, colored uh, and I remember my dad set up a plant in a small town in South Carolina, and he and I were walking down the street, and there was an older black gentleman, and he was walking towards us. And he stepped into the street off the sidewalk to let us walk by. And my dad looked at him and said, sir, why did you do that? There's plenty of room on the sidewalk. And the man said to my father, you're the new white boss in town. And my dad said, yes, I guess I'm the new boss. And yes, I am white, but there still was room on the sidewalk. And I saw that. And I looked at all the places that these good people couldn't use the bathroom. And it was what movie was it about the lady in NASA, the, the black lady in NASA who was the computer genius? They took down the colored bathroom, woman room, or whatever. They don't remember how real it was. That may have been much more subtle and common to everyday life as opposed to a lot of the ugliness, the violence that we're seeing now. Actually, uh, I would disagree. It's just the opposite. That was okay. much more overt then, and it's much more subtle now. I mean, you can't go around lynching people now. 
And if you do, you're going to do it in, in the night and you're going to do it covertly and you will not have people surrounding you cheering and having picnics. We have come a long way, still have a long way to go, but that's progress in that regard. We get off the sidewalk, you still get off the sidewalk, but it's much more subtle. This is fascinating, and I could sit and talk with you for hours on end. I'm particularly intrigued by some of the thoughts that you put into my mind and the, the, the absolute necessity of educating and learning about our cultural background. I'm hoping that we can make this a better world for everybody. And, sir, thank you very much, and I hope we can continue this discussion down the road. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. I wish we had more time. Yeah, I thank you, and it was my pleasure.